0: Our scripture reading is going to come from Hebrews 13, 7 and 8. Doing something different this morning, Uh, usually on Memorial Day weekend, I I use that Sunday and I deliver a biographical message uh, to remember uh, our leaders, uh, our our, our Christian leaders from the past, uh, to learn from them. And That's what we are going to be doing uh, this morning since I won't be here a month from now on Memorial Day. But... uh, Begin by just uh, sharing from God's Word, Hebrews 13, 7 and 8. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. This is God's Word. And just to give some context... What we're doing this morning with this message is just obeying this passage, just obeying God's word here to remember uh, a leader and consider the outcome of his way of life to seek to imitate his faith. Let's pray. Father, as we now turn our attention uh, to the life of one of your servants, we pray for your help that you would reveal to us things in our lives that that we could grow in. We could uh, seek to uh, obey you with more faithfulness. Uh, That we could change the way maybe we think about the gospel, um, about what's really important in the life of a church, and what uh, we need from you. Help us, Father, I pray, uh, to have the humility to recognize that everything of any spiritual good comes from your grace. Through Jesus Christ, your Son. We pray in his name. Amen. I'm going to begin, as I usually do, with these uh, messages, just sharing a brief overview uh, of the life of the particular Christian leader uh, from history that we are going to be remembering this morning, and then I will focus Uh, on a few lessons I've learned from considering his way of life. So David Martin Lloyd-Jones was born in Cardiff, Wales, on December 20th, 1899, the middle son of Henry and Magdalene Lloyd-Jones. His older brother, Harold, would die during what was called the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918. His parents were humble folks. His father was often struggling in his business ventures as a grocer and moved the family a couple of different times, uh, finally ending up in London when Martin was 14 years old where he bought a dairy business. Finally ending up, um, I'm sorry, uh, Martin would then often help his father to deliver milk to their customers' homes around their neighborhood in London. His younger brother, Vincent, grew to become a high court judge in London. Uh, Martin would excel in his studies and he uh, was accepted at St. Bartholomew's Teaching Hospital in London as a medical student in 1917 and received his MD from London University in 1921, just 21 years of age. Uh, at St. Bart's, which it w- was known as, Martin became Sir Thomas Horder's Chief Clinical Assistant. Uh, Horder became... Sir Thomas Horder, and later Lord Thomas Horder, because he served as the medical director or the the medical doctor for the royal family. And uh, he described his assistant as the most acute thinker that I ever knew. So Martin was gifted and was on his way up the ladder. He was serving under one of the top physicians in all of London at one of the most prestigious hospitals and was highly respected, but something else was happening in Martin's soul as he was beginning his medical career. He was attending chapel regularly and was hearing the preaching of the gospel, and he was born again sometime in 1924 or 25. He doesn't really tell us exactly when it happened. While serving at St. Bart's as a member of the Royal College of Physicians, Martin began to to sense a yearning, a passion to preach the gospel. And he preached his first sermon in his homeland of Wales in 1925. After two years of, of wondering and praying about what the Lord would have him do, he believed the Lord was calling him to leave his medical practice and serve the church as a minister of the gospel in his home country. So in January of 1927, he married Bethan Phillips, who was also from Wales and had been a medical student along with Martin and had also been attending the same chapel with him. She was the daughter of a, faith, of a faithful Christian parents and her father was one of the top eye surgeons in England at the time. Uh, But rather than setting up their medical practice in one of the world's largest and most prominent cities, they settled in this little seacoast town in Wales, and Martin became the pastor of the Bethlehem Forward Movement Mission Church in Sandfields, Aberavon. He would serve in this little known, out-of-the-way place for the next 11 years, and God would bless those years by saving many souls from condemnation who came under Martin's passionate gospel preaching. Uh, Martin loved traveling across the ocean by boat to the United States, where he found that his gospel preaching was even more well-received there than in Great Britain. His preaching was described as crystal clear, doctrinally sound, logical, and on fire. Or just logic on fire, as he liked to describe it. While preaching in in Philadelphia in the summer of 1937, another famous preacher from England, G. Campbell Morgan, who was the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, was also in attendance and heard him preach. And he left impressed and greatly encouraged. So Campbell Morgan was nearing retirement, and so he asked Martin to join him at at, uh, Westminster Chapel as his associate. And it took a couple of years, but eventually Martin accepted the call to go to London and Westminster Chapel in 1939. The day before he was to officially be accepted by the church into his new position, World War II broke out. Hitler would soon begin bombing raids on London. They became so regular that it would even happen at times when they were having worship services at one time, Uh, Martin was in the middle of his pastoral prayer in a service when a bomb hit a building fairly close to Westminster Chapel, and dust and plaster began falling from the ceiling uh, of the chapel, and Lloyd-Jones was up at the pulpit praying, and he paused briefly, then continued to pray, and afterward preached his full sermon. One of the church leaders had to get up and brush the dust off of his shoulders and the pulpit as he began to preach his sermon. In 1943, Campbell Morgan retired and Martin became the sole minister of Westminster Chapel. He would preach the Sunday morning worship services, then preach an evangelistic message on Sunday evenings, and then on Fridays would preach to a gathering of the church focusing on biblical doctrine. Eventually he would preach verse by verse through Romans on Friday nights, Ephesians on Sunday mornings and Acts on Sunday evenings, just going one verse at a time, sometimes spending multiple weeks on the same verse, but thousands came to hear him preach. At the peak, there were 1,500 gathering on Sunday mornings at the chapel. Then in the evenings, over 2,000 would come with a little over 1,000 gathering on Friday evenings. People would come to the chapel for the morning service, bringing their lunches with them. They'd remain at the chapel for Sunday school classes, which met in the afternoons. And then the church would have a fellowship meal prior to the evening service. And many would be there from 10 o'clock in the morning all the way until 8 o'clock at night. Martin Lloyd Jones would preach at Westminster Chapel for 30 years until 1968, when he was diagnosed with colon cancer and was forced to undergo surgery. So he decided then it was best to retire from the church at the age of 68. He then focused uh, on editing his sermons that were being transcribed. During the years of his preaching ministry, he received countless requests to preach around Great Britain and in Canada and the U.S. He often traveled through England and Wales preaching during the week, especially in the 1950s. And he would also spend his summers preaching in North America at special conferences, And this is what created the high demand for his published sermons. In the last months and weeks of his life, Lloyd-Jones continued to dictate letters that were sent to encourage friends and younger ministers of the gospel. He met regularly with his friend and former assistant, Ian Murray, who was asked to write his biography. But in February 1981, his health took a turn for the worse, and he began to grow weaker. Uh, His wife and two daughters cared for him in these last Weeks and on February 24th, Martin's doctor visited him and wanted to give him some antibiotics. And uh, Ian Murray reports that, that, that Lloyd Jones shook his head in disagreement. He was a doctor too. He didn't think he needed them, he didn't want any more medication. He was ready to go to be with his Lord. But his doctor responded in this way, and I think this is a wise way for a doctor to respond. He said, Well, When the Lord's time comes for you, even though I fill you up to the top of your head with antibiotics, it won't make any difference. (laughs) They told him, I want to make you comfortable, more comfortable. It grieves me to see you sitting here weary, worn, and sad. And that was too much for Martin. He hadn't spoken in a few days. But when he heard that, he said, not sad, not sad. And these were his final words that anyone would hear this great preacher proclaim. He wanted to make sure everyone knew that his parting from this life was not making him depressed, but that he was assured of where he was about to go and who he was about to face. He decided uh, he, he died in his sleep five days later on March 1st, 1981, and I have learned much from the life and ministry of Martin Lloyd-Jones and I am still learning from him as I continue to read his sermons and even listen to him preach online. The Martin uh, Lloyd-Jones Trust or the MLJ Trust has many of his recurred, re, 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 recorded sermons available for anyone to listen to for free uh, through their website or their smartphone app. You can listen to the great Martin Lloyd-Jones preached through that ministry, mljtrust.org. Uh, I have a, just a couple of pictures I wanted to, uh, to show, if, if we could bring those up, Garrett. Um, just to give you a little picture of who Lloyd-Jones is, was. Here he is. Uh, so there's a good picture of him in his younger, younger years. This is his wife, uh, Bethan and their oldest daughter, Elizabeth. Here's him uh, reading his Bible, a little older. This is a picture of uh, Westminster Chapel um, in London. Pretty grand structure. This is the interior during the time of his ministry. As you can see, there are two balconies uh, in uh, in the chapel, uh, this is looking towards the, the pulpit. See the pulpit there in the middle? And there's this kind of circle railing around it. And then, of course, the great organ there on top. Um, Martin hated the building. He hated it. Says so, so hard to preach to because it's so big and cavernous. Um, and uh, a lot of the pastors that preach prior to him getting there when, when, when Martin arrived, that was kind of just when sound systems were, 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 were getting into place. And so they could project his voice through a microphone. Well, the, the poor pastors that preached in that, that huge cavernous hall before that didn't have the luxury of a microphone. And so they wore themselves out trying to shout and preach to all those people that would gather there. There's Martin Lloyd-Jones meeting the Queen. That's Queen Elizabeth that he's uh, able to greet there. And you can see he's pretty proud of that. So this is Martin and his wife, uh, Bethan, uh, in their later years. This is a picture of his uh, memorial service in the chapel. Now this is looking the other direction uh, towards the back. And again, just three levels just filled uh, with folks. Standing room only for his memorial service. And there's our our final picture. So, um, I have three lessons from his life that I want to share with you. This morning, the first is that there is only one hope for sinful man, and no one is out of the reach of that hope. In most of the churches in Wales and England in the early 20th century, real gospel preaching wasn't taken seriously or wasn't happening at all. Following the Enlightenment of the previous centuries, the the different denominations and Christian associations in Great Britain were focused more on man's ability to make himself better and were skeptical about the supernatural. But something else was happening in the early 20th century. That is two world wars. Two world wars humbled the British Empire and all of Western nations. And Lloyd-Jones, following his conversion, right about the same time as World War I was concluding, uh, consistently pointed to both wars as proof of man's sinful depravity and inability to make himself better or to do anything to turn society around. As a medical doctor, Lloyd-Jones also was troubled by how his patients would come in to see him, and he could prescribe medications and treatments to take care of the symptoms of their hurts and sicknesses, but no matter what he did, he could not keep his his patients from ultimately dying. He realized as a young doctor that many of the patients that he treated were in poor condition because of their own choices and their own behaviors. They were enslaved their sinful desires and habits which often led to their ter- terrible conditions and they couldn't change. They couldn't save themselves. Lloyd-Jones found much of the preaching and teaching going on in the churches as also useless. For they would preach Christ's moral teachings such as the, the Sermon on the Mount and call their people to go and do likewise to follow Christ's example. They were preaching Christ's words but without Christ's power. Their teacher was coming from the the assumption that man's essential nature is good. And therefore, man can change himself. Man can look within himself and improve himself. But Lloyd-Jones was convinced of what the biblical gospel actually taught. Quoting from Ephesians 1 and 2, that man is dead in trespasses and sins and enslaved to the evil passions of our flesh and are by nature children of wrath. Lloyd-Jones said of the ministry of most of the churches of his time, is one thing to produce a religious man. Men can do that, but it takes the power of God in Jesus Christ to produce a Christian man. And there is no limit to that power. Lloyd-Jones knew that there was nothing he could do to transform the heart and life of anyone who came here and preach. It was something only God could do. But how God has prescribed for life transformation to take place is through the faithful preaching of the true biblical gospel. He was convinced that what the, what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 10.17 was true, that it was a fact that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, the gospel. So he believed that preaching the biblical gospel was the most exalted work any man could do, but only if it was the pure gospel, clearly outlining the hopeless condition of sinful man and pointing out that the answer was outside of man, not inside of man. That our only hope was in God through the saving work of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That we can do nothing, we can bring nothing, it must be all of Christ. He loved a quote from the, the, the old hymn, Rock of Ages. Thou must save and thou alone. Christ is the only hope for sinful man. But Lloyd-Jones also believed that no one is out of the reach of Christ. That there was hope for anyone. He never doubted God's power to save even the most hardened sinners. During his ministry in, in, in sand fields in Wales, there was a man who was known there around town as Staffordshire Bill. He was about 70 years old at the time and had a reputation as a drunk and a mean drunk. Every day after his work, he would drink at the local tavern, sitting at a table all by himself because even the other drunks in the bar had no patience for his mean spirit and obscene language. He sold fish door to door and hauled the fish around in this two-wheeled car wooden cart pulled by his faithful pony when he would travel home each night fully inebriated after his time at the bar he would usually end up uh, passing out and as he would travel up the hills towards his house he would fall backwards into the cart where he'd land on top of whatever fish was left there in in the back of that cart with his legs sticking up in the air, resting against the wooden plank that he used for a seat, while his dutiful horse would just keep pulling him along (laughs) all the way home. And that's the way his wife would find him most nights when he arrived. And she'd, of course, have to help him out of that cart and into bed each night. One Sunday afternoon, while Bill was sitting at his table in the local tavern trying to drink away his sorrows once again. He overheard two other men talking at the table next to him. They were talking about that gospel preacher at the Forward Movement Chapel. And one said to the other, yes, I was there last Sunday night. And that preacher said, nobody was hopeless. He said there was hope for everybody. And the Lord took that little sentence, uttered by a man in a bar, as he quoted just a handful of words that Martin Lloyd-Jones had preached in his sermon the previous week, and transformed the heart and life of the town drunk. Staffordshire Bill said to himself, in that moment, if there's hope for everybody, there's hope for me. I'll go to that chapel myself and see what that man says. Well, he went to the chapel that very night and the next week, but he did not yet have the courage to enter the building. He would go up to the gate, and the first time he heard that they were already singing inside, he said, oh, I'm too late, I'll just go home. So he just went home. The next time he went up and he was about to go in, but he just didn't have the courage to enter in, In the meantime, though, in those weeks, he had completely given up drinking. And then finally, on on, on the third week, he went to the chapel again and stood outside as usual when another member of the church recognized him and welcomed him like an old friend and grabbed his arm and, and led him into the chapel and sat down next to him. And from that... Night on, he never missed a service for the rest of his life, dying just a, a few years later. So there's only one hope for sinful man, and that hope is for everybody. Christ is alive, so nobody is hopeless. Secondly, uh, being aware of how God works so powerfully through faithful gospel preaching in the past will encourage similar preaching today. Uh, Martin Lloyd Jones loved reading about the great work of God in the past and learning from the faithful preachers who had gone before him, particularly within Great Britain. Uh, it inspired him, it invigorated him, and he loved sharing it with others. He read biographies and the writings of the Puritans and the 18th century evangelists whenever he could get his hands on them, and he encouraged others to do the same. He longed to see God do a renewing work in the churches of Great Britain like he had done in the days of the Reformation and the Puritans, and the evangelical awakening of the 18th century led by John Wesley and George Whitfield, And he believed that if his fellow pastors and their church members could be made aware uh, of these great renewing works of God in the past, it would encourage more and more faithful gospel work in the future. While he was serving as the pastor of the Forward Movement Mission Church in Aberavon, Wales, he began a men's fellowship group that met on Saturday evenings. He would talk to these men about the biographies and books that he had been reading. Uh, He told the the men stories of of God's work in the past, particularly in the revivals in Wales, in their own country, that took place in the the 19th century. He would lead the men on trips to the different chapels and towns where these revivals took place. And Lloyd-Jones would give kind of a historical tour, talking about these humble men, whom God used to proclaim the life-transforming power of the gospel. When he he began then to serve in in England, he found that other evangelical ministers would come to him and seek his counsel and friendship. It wasn't long before he had a fairly large group of men whom he organized to meet regularly for fellowship and discussion. And what would they discuss? Well, mainly they would discuss what they were reading from the Puritans and biographies. And out of that fellowship of young evangelical pastors came a few different but related organizations that uh, worked to promote learning about God's gospel work in history. Uh, one of the young ministerial students that was drawn to Westminster Chapel to hear Lloyd Jones preach and then who became a close friend was J.I. Packer. Uh, Packer became an influential author of theological books which have helped many Christians, young and old, grow in their understanding of God and in the Christian faith. When I read Packer's book, Knowing God, my life was transformed and I named my son after him. Lloyd-Jones and Packer worked together to organize the Puritan Conference at Westminster Chapel, which was a conference for pastors and other interested Christians which focused on the writings of the Puritans. Uh, It began in 1956 and ran uh, until 1969. Uh, this conference inspired many other conferences for pastors that still happen today, such as uh, John Piper's uh, Bethlehem Pastors Conference that I attended several years in a row when I was uh, first beginning my ministry uh, back in Iowa. And uh, Together for the Gospel, which was just uh, uh, finished its its final uh, biannual biennial conference in Louisville this past week. They've been meeting since 2006, every other year. And uh, John MacArthur's Shepherds Conference at his church in California just a few of the, uh, the, the, the bigger ones that are still meeting. Uh, since uh, Lloyd-Jones had such an interest in the writings of the Puritans, he found himself being made aware of collections of old books of Puritan writings that, that needed a new home. Um, so Martin worked with a few other men to create the Evangelical Library in London, which became a huge collection of antique evangelical books that were out of print that no one was publishing. Uh, pastors and scholars like J.I. Packer made use of this library to grow in their understanding of the great work of God in the church and in the past. But Lloyd-Jones realized it wasn't enough just to have a library with collections of these old books. He believed that the church needed these books available to them to have them in their homes, to, to give them to their children, to read, to provide every younger minister with these books. So he worked with his assistant, Ian Murray, to found a publishing company, The Banner of Truth Trust, which still publishes Puritan books today. It began as a monthly magazine, uh, printing these Puritan writings, but quickly progressed to publish whole books and even the complete works of Puritan pastors and writers such as John Owen, John Flavel, and John Bunyan. John was a common name back in the 1600s. (laughs) Lloyd-Jones said, A pastor must nourish his mind. And he thought there was no better way to do that than to read the great biblically-infused works of the Puritans. He said, the Puritans do something to you. And I have come to know what he meant. These books are still growing in popularity, even today. And the church may not even know who these men were if not for Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, One of the things that I found most encouraging in my work as a pastor is getting together regularly with other pastor friends to read and and discuss the Bible and theology theology books as well as biographies. And I've done this at least every other month since I began serving as a pastor in Iowa back in 2006, uh, joining a group that had been meeting since the late 1980s. Um, One pastor who still uh, meets in that group was the one who began it back in the late 80s. We just met again uh, this past Tuesday up in Beersford, South Dakota, and the Lord has used that group meeting um, to keep me going in the ministry. And we learned that practice from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Thirdly, the man who finds a good wife receives favor from the Lord. The man who finds a good wife receives favor from the Lord. Martin and, and Bethan were a great match Both were trained as medical doctors. Both were solidly evangelical in their Christian experience. Both were very smart and quick-witted, and they both greatly loved and respected each other, and that especially comes out in their letters to one another. Uh, Martin and Bethan were blessed with two daughters, Elizabeth and Anne, but they came 10 years apart. That meant that while Elizabeth was getting to the point of being fairly independent, Anne was still in great need of her mother's care and attention. Therefore, in those early years of Martin's ministry, when he was asked to travel to preach around Great Britain and even to America, uh, his wife, uh, Bethan, often stayed home to care for the girls, and Martin had to travel without her. Uh, A few letters of theirs have been published. Uh, In May of 1937, Martin was on his way to America, going across the Atlantic on a ship, and he wrote to his wife and daughters from that ship just a day after uh, uh, they had left, mentioning how sad he was to have to depart without them and to be separated from them for several weeks. So he wrote them this, Beth and dear, you are dearer to me than ever, and I feel prouder of you than ever before. I hope that this change will do you all three good. That is the change of not having them around for six weeks. God has been marvelously good to me. You, Elizabeth, and Anne, and haven't we been blessed with two exceptionally sweet little girls? You will all be in my thoughts every step of this trip, and I shall be daily thanking God for you. And he closed the letter with, All my love to you, my three beloved ones, and especially to the biggest of them. (laughs) Ever, always yours, Martin. Then in September of 1939... Uh, just after Martin was uh, installed as the, as the associate pastor at Westminster Chapel in London. That was also the month that the war began and London was being bombed uh, during the uh, initial stages of the German Blitzkrieg. Uh, Bethan and the girls stayed in the country outside of the city for their safety uh, while Martin served the congregation in London. And this is one of their letters where Martin responds uh, to Bethan's letter to him saying to him that he would most likely get used to being without her. And here's his response. I see that you are quite incorrigible. The idea that I shall become used to being without you is really funny. I could speak for a long time on the subject. As I have told you many, many times, the passing of the years does nothing but deepen and intensify my love for you. When I think of those days in London in 1925 and 26, when they're recording, when I thought that no greater love was possible, I could laugh. But honestly, during this last year, I've come to believe that it was not possible for a man to love his wife more than I loved you. And yet, I see that there is no end to love. And that it is still true that absence makes the heart grow fonder. I am quite certain that there is no lover anywhere writing to his girl who is quite as mad about her as I am. So there you go, husbands. little encouragement there for you to learn from Martin Lloyd-Jones on how to write love notes to your wife. And of course, now your wives also heard this, so you're expected to do it. Well, at the end of his life, while Bethan was caring for him, while he lay dying, Martin would often tell her in his daughter's presence how grateful he was that by God's grace he had wound up with her rather than any other woman. Whereas Bethan would also also respond, like any other woman would have you, Martin. Martin. And then to have that that great blessing that he had of 55 years together with her. Uh, Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. I know this to be true personally and so did Martin Lloyd-Jones. So let's pray and give thanks for him. Our Father in heaven, we do give you thanks for Martin and his wife, uh, Bethan Lloyd-Jones. We thank you for his ministry, uh, the great work that he was able to accomplish by your spirit, by your grace. We pray, Father, for faithful, strong gospel preaching in the church today, throughout our nation, in, in Great Britain, throughout the world, that we would learn from his example and from your word. That the only hope for man is Christ. And that Christ is available to all. To all who look to him. As he has said, any who who, who turn to him, he will in no way cast out. So Father, help us to be faithful to that message as believers. To not be afraid to proclaim it. To not um, be ashamed. For it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.